Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by Timber Living Log Cabins. For your perfect workspace, living space or hideaway, timberliving.ie. I'm looking around feeling very guilty right now about plastic water bottles on the table and the reams of bits of paper that I've printed off various things in because the final episode of EcoEye was broadcast last week and I'm joined now by its longtime presenter and, and driving force and I think pioneer of environmentalism in Ireland, Duncan Stewart. Good afternoon, Duncan. Thanks, Brendan, and really thank you for inviting me onto your show. No, oh, well, thank you for coming in. Were you sad to see EcoEye end? Well, I... I expected it, Brendan. You know, all of these things come to an end, you know, and 21 years was pretty good, you know, and we had a great audience, very loyal audience, <clears throat> really good positive comments from from everybody. You know, I've never actually had anyone come up to me in the street and say they don't like what I do, you know. So, mm. in other words, I, I, I appreciate what people, when they tell you that... They, they like what I'm doing and they, they want to see more of it, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think people think you're one of the good guys. You were kind of ahead of your time in terms of the environment, really, weren't you, and the green agenda and everything. But you, I gather you were kind of raised in nature, were you? I was, really, yes. My parents were very committed to the environment, my mother now especially, and she wrote over 300 songs and they were all related to the environment. Really? Yeah. And we were living up in the Wicklow Mountains, Dublin Wicklow Mountains, Glenaswole, yeah. and uh, rare there. And it was, you know, a lovely place to live. Were they, we, were, so were they kind of hippies? Like, was they um, kind of a hippie? Well, she was in a way in that she was probably before the hippies, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. But she was, uh, she had been a film actress before that as a young person. And, you know, uh, but my father was uh, in the army and a very down-to-earth guy, All you know, right, and yeah. very intelligent man. Yeah. And uh, he loved a bit of farming. So we had enough land to kind of, to do a little bit of kind of growing our own vegetables. And we had our own Kerry cow for our milk. And we grew up and obviously living from, foraging from nature was a big part of our life too. So so did they make this choice to kind of go back to nature? They did? They did, yeah. They did. And would people have been aware? I know the, the, there was a kind of a, a that philosophy of Gaia kind of kicked off in the 60s kind of thing, didn't it? But were people that aware of the environmental issues at that stage? No, um, you know, it was a very small minority of people. And, you know, some really good people out there that were really understood the challenges that we were facing, you know. Yeah. And um, I really kind of took a big interest in that in, in, in my university in UCD. And I set up a group called RAGE, a radical action for good environment. Well, a group of us set it up. Um, and were you kind of viewed as cranks? Well, we were kind of, um, kind of out there protesting. And, you know, destruction of Dublin was part of what our, we're looking at as architectural students, you know. Yeah, yeah. And Georgian Dublin being decimated was one of our big issues. And the Grand Canal going to become a motorway. I mean, Grand Canal around Dublin was to be a motorway. Dublin Corporation's plans were so we had to protest about that and we blocked it and we lost one stretch of it going up to Guinness's you know the um, the spur that goes off the Grand Canal unfortunately the local residents wanted the canal closed because they felt it was rat infested so we lost that battle you know but the Grand Canal was to be a motorway right all around the sea and the Royal Canal rightly so was going to be too Okay, so you so you were kind of a, at that stage. It was very practical stuff about protecting the built yeah, environment and sure, protecting the environment sure. we live. Come here. I was thinking about about your parents though, bringing you out the country and everything. And isn't it funny now that people living out the countryside now, who like the custodians of of the environment, really, 
I think a lot of them feel under attack by the Green movement now, don't they? That their way of life is being threatened by the Greens. Well, you see, we really went on the wrong path in Ireland, you know. <clears throat> and when I go back to my student days, it was quite obvious that car journeys were going to increase, you know, and we were going to see an explosion of car numbers increasing from what it was then. And we were sprawling out. And for me as an architect, I felt that was completely wrong, you know. We should be trying to consolidate into our towns and our villages, our population, rather than spreading out. <clears throat> and that has led to a huge problem. You know, our emissions from transport, I mean, are shocking, you know. Yeah. I mean... So do you, do, the car for you would be a big thing, the idea that we all have cars and that we all use them to go places. Yes, and I understand people needing cars. Yeah, There's and particularly no rural that. Ireland. Like, of again, course. that's one of the reasons they feel under attack. They say we've no public transport Absolutely. system. And they're right. Yeah. And they're right. I mean, we unfortunately, you know, because when you sprawl out, it becomes much more... If it, it co less cost effective, in other words, to, to and less efficient to have public transport. But we really have to have public transport for all of these people because it, we have to subsidise public transport, you know. Uh, you Will know, the electric car make a difference? It makes a small difference. And yes, it, it's important, but it's never going to solve the problem. So it's really the culture of people feeling that they need to have their own private transport. They need to make a head switch about that. Do you? It's a culture thing, yeah. I mean, we've become so dependent on the car. People don't think of other alternative ways of moving, you know. Cycling, I love cycling and it's, to me, you know, it's great exercise <clears throat> and I enjoy it. Now, I'm lucky I'm living in Dublin, living yeah. in Sandymount, so I, I've no, and I've got a, a very good dart system nearby, so I've, I'm privileged in having good public you transport You see, people locally. will think, all oh, right, so he's living in, in suburban Dublin himself. They might expect you to be living out, out in the wild still or foraging or all that kind of thing. So you're, you're a city slicker now away from nature. Well, I am in that the choice was really, if I knew I was going to live out in nature, it was going to be a major problem for me. And I, I actually set out originally to, to, to live uh, in the mountains. And uh, yeah. <clears throat> I, it, it was clear that this was going to become a major problem for me in that I would be dependent on a car. So so, so it's purely on the, on the fact of a car that, yeah. you do, that you don't live where you want to live and well, live uh, the way you want to live, yeah? Yeah, a car is probably the single biggest damage we do. The private car and the taxi, by the way, unfortunately, both of them together are a major part of the problem. You know, our emissions in Ireland from transport were meant to have gone down by 20% from 1990 to 2020. And all of our emissions went up by 12%. But our transport emissions went up by, guess, throw a guess. 30. Again. Up. Yeah. 40. OK, rather than waste time. Yeah. 153%. Hang on, in what, in what period? 30 years, 1990. Okay. Two and a half times increase. So we have a shocking issue. And 60% of that is from car transport, you know. If you take freight transport, it's one third. And all of our freight is going on roads, not on rail, you know. Okay. So we have major problems in that our total transport system is totally... Un in basically, we will not reach our targets with greenhouse gas emissions unless fundamental changes in our transport system. So... To go back to you then, you, you, so you were saying you're an architect student, then an architect. 
was the architecture um, was was that a, a, an environmentally focused architecture you did? Like, were they compatible the two things? Yes, I, I could go back to say the oil crisis in the early seventies. You know, nineteen seventy three. I was. How old were you at that stage? Well, I was kind of twenty two or three years, yeah. twenty three, I think, or something like that. But I do remember that um, I was lecturing in DIT. You know, I was very young to be lecturing, and I discovered during that whole situation of the oil embargo that really everything, our reliance on oil and and, car, and fossil fuels was completely wrong. And for our buildings, I focused on our buildings and energy efficiency and renewable energy, solar energy was all very much part of my agenda, really. You know, mm. And I, I kind of identified with a very good engineer, John Cash, who, who lectured in, in the college with me. And I learned an awful lot from him and we basically pioneered kind of energy efficiency and insulation. Okay. Insulation wasn't there then. There's no insulation in really? buildings. Yeah. And 50 years on, we're still catching up. Yeah. Um, when did you give up architecture then? I gave up. I phased it out because I got too busy with my other work, TV work, etc. But mainly because I had a bad accident out in Belarus. And from that point of view, when I came back, I had to reassess my, I was over busy. And, you know, yeah. I'd lost time already in the hospital. I know you don't want to get bogged down in too much, mm. but just re remind people about that accident, because I, I do feel it was kind of life changing for you, was it? I, yes, I suppose it was in that I fundamentally had to review where I was going, you know, and... With, what happened <clears throat> first? Oh, well, I fell and this was my own fault. I can't blame anybody. I was filming, you know, it, mostly the fallout of the problems to the people of Belarus and northern Ukraine and Western Russia that were affected by the fallout from the Chernobyl compound. So I uh, arranged uh, with A.D. Roach, who was really very helpful with me at that time, to, to, to get into the compound. And we got permission with scientists to go in and visit the compound. But I, got, I wasn't able to film what I really wanted to of the core of the reactor, where so much uranium is still and the, and the whole structure is corroding. So I was very, very concerned about an explosion taking place there too, you know. Mm. So, uh, in other words, that kind of led me. But anyway, I had an accident. I ended up unconscious for three days. Um, and really, that's, that's all I remember of, of, the, of okay. the thing. And then how did it change things for you? I saw your, your, you said your family thought you became a slightly different person, more serious after that. I think everybody tells me I did, yeah. In that I, 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 was, I was quite easygoing and, you know, full of, full of curiosity of the world and still yeah. am, of course, in that situation. But I was, I had a much more positive outlook to things. But the whole issue of environmental pressures became much more reality to me, you know. So do you think, like, I mean, I hesitate to say an acquired brain injury, but did something change in, in your head then after it that you your perspective became different, yeah? I think it's mainly from the pain, basically, you know. Really? Because the pain just persists and I don't want to bore anybody with my pains. People, but I, listen, I, I'm I'll tell you what, we, ha we, yeah. we had um, Austin O'Carroll, the doctor, in a few weeks ago, he talked about chronic pain. The flood of texts we got, people are, uh, it's, it's something that obviously a lot of people are carrying around. But, so you're in constant pain, yeah? Yes, but I don't want to talk about it. You yeah. know? I mean, of course, I'm in pain here now, of course, but I mean, okay. I don't even think about it. Would I it change your personality slightly, probably? It probably did, you know, in that... Less lighter. Yes, but I probably started delving more into how serious climate change was. was. Okay. And I went into more of, of, you know, the biodiversity loss, like reports that came out at that time, scientific reports, that, you know, populations of wildlife are plummeting. 
you know, and they, every year they were getting worse, you know. We've now reached a situation where we're now down to 32% of all populations of wildlife. And so insects, two, do what, two, two thirds have, have been wiped out? Two thirds, two -thirds of, of, of populations species or populations, sorry, yeah, yeah. The populations of wildlife, mammals, birds, reptiles, amphibians, invertebrates, you know, all of these species and insects, which are the engine of, of all, everything, of ecosystems, of food chains, of everything. Insects have plummeted by over 80%. We're down to less than 20% of insect populations. And you've all sorts of pressures. And ones that we don't seem to take account of is, say, daylight, for, or, or sorry, artificial light at nighttime. Has a, has a, it contributes greatly to the problem, yeah. especially kind of the bright white, blue-white lights contributes. So we've gone away from a dark night system to an artificial light, which creates massive damage to, to nature and wildlife, on top of all the other pressures. Yeah, yeah. And so, like, when you start delving into it, and I think we've seen this a bit with young people recently too, it gets overwhelming, does it, when you see the extent of the problem? Yeah. I think it's really tough for that young generation, you know, and, and really what I'm doing it for is for the young generation. And by the way, when I'm talking about young generation, I'm talking about people your age. Yeah, thank you. I have to yeah. say, it's, well, in a way, it's, you know, I'm, you I'm hoping to be out the gap before the worst of it comes. But <laughs> yeah, but this is it. You go okay, to be with, hit. Yeah, but, so without alarming people and without yeah. alarming them. So where is this going? Well, and, and how much can we do about it? Where is it going first? Well, where it's going, I, I, I chaired a conference in Galway last year, November, I think it was, of a youth assembly. All of the schools, second level schools in Galway came together for a conference in the University of Galway. And uh, I was chairing the conference for two days. And I asked them the question, you know, what do they feel about the future? And the focus of all of them. Every class was represented in every second level school mm. from 12 year olds up to 18. They unanimously said their fear of climate change. And, and you would probably say they're right. So, so in terms in, of, of what kind of outcomes we're going to start seeing now, what is the science? Well, we have to us? make fundamental changes, you know, and that young generation's future depends on that. You know, if we want a future for our young generation, we have to realise the trajectory we're on is completely unsustainable. OK. And we are ignoring the, the science and we're ignoring the warnings. The are facts. we? Yeah. And the United Nations reports are very clear. They're very, very unequivocal about what's coming down and their warnings are very stark. And we're not, and our governments and our politicians are not responding. Yeah, no. Look, I could I could read out a list to you of the of the of, of the climate actions that the government has, and and you know everybody knows them, and they're well publicised, and you know they are doing uh, they they are doing things. They are but doing suppose, things, but they're there, not doing enough. Okay, they are not yeah. doing anywhere near enough. If we want to think of our children. And we want them to have a flourishing future beyond 2020, 2050, for example, when things get really serious. So what happens when things get really serious? Tell me that first. Well, give me a, me a picture. Society will break down. Law and order will break down globally. We will have... W w within 30 years? We can't put figures on it, but it yeah. could come much sooner. It will come in shocks, major shocks. 
impacts of climate change, biodiversity loss, loss of ecosystem services, water quality issues, all of these, the plastic issue, for example, you know, microplastics, these things are accelerating every year greater. And if we stand back from it all, the rich in the world do most of the damage. The 1% rich, the Oxford, uh, the Oxfam report that came out there two years ago, the 1% rich in the world generate 16% of all the carbon emissions. The billionaires of the, air, of the, the earth generate, <laughs> even if we take from 2020 to, to now, the billionaires have earned 26 trillion, 26 trillion dollars in, 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 since then, which is twice what the 99% of the population have earned. We're out of control with inequality. Inequality mm. is fundamental to everything. So we're living in an age of, <clears throat> back to the inequality of the colonial ages, you know, and we, we don't realise that the distribution of wealth is incredibly being sucked in by the wealthiest. Yeah. But, and, and that is a major look, part of the environment. You'd accept that most people have a quality of life that is far above what it was in colonial times or feudal times or anything, that there has been in Absolutely. general, in those in extreme poverty, much fewer of them, and there has been a general increase in Absolutely. general standards of living. Yeah, yeah. But why will society break down? Will it be water? Uh, is the precursor for that? or, or Well, if you take, if you, you if you take Ireland, for example, we're in a very lucky situation. Well, OK, our emissions are incredibly high relative to Europe. They're 50% above the European average per person. We okay. are the laggards of Europe. We have to admit to it and accept it that we are way out of line. But how we're going to probably mostly be affected, it, obviously rising sea is going to have its major impacts and storm surges from hurricanes and all of these other things. Yeah. But the overriding issue that's facing us is the fact that there will be hundreds of millions, if not billions of people migrating on the move because they will have no choice. I spent so much of my time interviewing delegates to the COP21 in Paris in 2015. And I spent my time eight days out there talking to delegates. And it, I was clearly, and all of my TV crew at the time, we were certain that we were going to see massive problems coming down the track with hundreds of billions having to abandon where they live. They have no choice. They have no capacity to cope with the problems. They have contributed practically nothing to the mm. emissions that are being created. And those people will have to move. And if they move into adjoining territories, there will be conflicts. If yeah. they move into big cities, there will be more and more. So they will migrate to the developed world. It's quite clear. I mean, it's staring us in the face. That's what's going to come. And okay. So no if nothing else, selfishness should uh, should encourage us to, yeah. to try and do it. So, so, so if we don't deal with those and, and, yeah. and make sure that we help those people now, you know, so that okay. they, so, to avoid this coming. So in terms of what needs to happen, I mean, I, I read uh, Greta Thunberg's climate book, which I'm, I'm sure you've read and it's a collection of very, very good essays and everything. The one thing I took away from it, like, and and I think she's kind of almost reluctant to say this herself, but I think it is what, that we need to change our whole society, our whole way of living, the whole system. Do we? Absolutely. 
that's a big ask though it's like people would rather just stick their fingers in their ears well that's what we're doing yeah that's what we're doing and that's when we're electing politicians we're doing we do not want to face the reality you know our farming systems are completely unsustainable we have an incredibly high carbon emissions from our agriculture and our farmers I don't blame our farmers I'm really on the side of farmers but farmers are not being given the choices that they need the big vested interests, the big exporters, the meat barns, the, the big dairy industries, they control the whole policy of agriculture, along with the IFA. And the farmers aren't just the pawns okay, that are being and, used. Okay, and look, the IFA are just trying to make a living for farmers, in fairness, and the b- businesses do what businesses do. Well, the IFA have a vested interest. Yeah, and look, that the Department of the Environment and the EPA are doing more and more, I know, to, to help in, in, in these situations. And like we do have the Greens in government who are having a big impact on, on policy and everything. So, OK, could you tell me with, without, let's, let's not beat up in the government because they're not here and everything. OK, sure. Okay, let's talk in the abstract. What do we need to do? Like if, a few concrete steps that... Well, it's, we have to, first of all, put a very high price on carbon in okay. Ireland. If we don't do that... And that needs to be very fair, you know, a system that's not going to make it difficult for poor people. It's got to be designed that the the more emissions that you create, the higher the price goes. So that those that create the emissions, it's the rich. You're saying carbon taxes have to go up up and up. Huge. And then we, uh, people who are on the lower end of the scale, we maybe recompense them for carbon tax. Absolutely. We've got to have uh, very much. We did made mistakes with the water charge in that it was not thought through and it was bullied really through. And unfortunately, the concept is that we should be paying for water, but it was so designed to be unequal, you know. It wasn't structured to be able to kind of incentivise poor people and, and, and not to be kind of putting another burden on poor people, you know. Okay. So we should learn the lessons, you know. We need to pay for water, but we have to do it in a way that those that squander water are penalised by, by, by the, the charge structure. And that money goes to subsidise the poor people that can't afford to pay, you know, yeah. Uh, a, a charge on water. What I mean is there, there's all these fundamental things we need to change. Yeah, but it's interesting what, what you're talking about though is using the market and using the kind of incentives of, of a market system in order to f- kind of incentivise people into good behaviour. Duncan, there are so many texts here uh, just people saying Duncan is an amazing man, best of luck with his new venture. Such a shame EcoI is finished, says another. Doesn't make sense at this time when we need to rapidly decarbonise our, our society. Um, lots and lots of them. Uh, so clearly people have very warm feelings towards you and think that you speak the truth and everything. But do you feel... Did EcoI make a difference? Do you feel you're making a difference? Do you feel people are listening? I, I don't really feel it's going into actions. <clears throat> people yeah. say they agree with me and, and they're doing things. But fundamentally, <clears throat> we're only going one direction, which is the wrong way. And when I look at our schools, we set up a thing called EcoEd for All, a group of us, all kind of experts on environmental issues. And we have a curriculum for school for transition for second level, especially for transition year, called EcoEd for All. Now, it's a movement that's going across the country, north and south. And we need initiatives like this. But 
we don't have a Department of Education that is taking this on board, what we're doing, you know. I mean, I would expect our, our government departments and our state agencies to come behind the sort of initiatives that I'm trying to bring forward. But they don't get it and they don't bother and you don't okay. get the support. So we, we need fundamental changes in our, in our government departments. Okay. We need and look, I think, I think in fairness, they are, get, they are starting they to, are. They are starting <coughs> to get it. Yeah. But I, I think I sense your frustration and I'm sure everyone does. It, it feels in a way like it's a lonely station for you. To, you've decided to, to go this road. You're, you've, you feel like someone who you're seeing the truth and you're trying to tell everyone else the truth and that, in a way, you're, you don't feel you're being listened to enough. Well, there's a lot of really good people out there, really good scientists and really good people involved in environmental issues, like the NGOs that are in the, national, the um, Irish Environmental Network, for example. Yeah. But they're incredibly poorly funded. OK. And we don't put funding behind the things that matter and the organisations that are doing good work. So I don't feel alone at all. Yeah, yeah. But I do feel I can't walk away from this. I, I, I fear for my own children. I fear for all young people of what's coming. And I feel my link is to try and get my information out through teachers. Teachers are really important, you know. Mm -hmm. So we have a focus on through the education centres around the country. We have this cross-border initiative with Cooperation Ireland now, with Northern Ireland schools, with our South of Ireland schools. And will you keep making television programmes as well? Uh, I will, area? I will, but I'm not, put it this way, it's low in my priority to Is do it? more. Because okay. I have so many things on my plate, you know. Yeah. But, but I will be doing more and more and more serious programmes. OK, um, I'll just read one last email from someone here. Duncan is an astonishingly erudite designer who has always tirelessly promoted the care and nurture, nurture of our environment from the time of him being my studio master in architecture at Bolton Street to the present day. The words legend and inspiration are so hackneyed, but Duncan embodies both major kudos to a great guy and musician. So you got the music from the mother as well, did you? Well, put it this way. If I play my clarinet now, you'd probably run out of the studio. Okay, you'd lose all well, listen, audio. you know what, though? I'm glad to hear <laughs> that you have some kind of an escape anyway where you get into the flow with the clarinet. Listen, Duncan, it's been very thought-provoking uh, and, and, uh, and, and a pleasure. I would like to just say, by the way, yeah. my team in EQI, I yeah. couldn't have done it without such an incredibly good team of people. You know, okay. they have been excellent right through that time, you know, and I get the easy job, they get the hard job but they really deliver some, you know, for me. Okay. Be good well, listen, I hope you and them will continue to deliver. Duncan Stewart, thank you very much. Let's take a break. Email brendan at rte.ie. 